BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome to the Science of Success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than 5 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this episode, we share how to memorize a deck of cards in less than 60 seconds and hacks from one of the world's leading memory experts, our guest, Nelson Dellis. Are you a fan of the show and have you been enjoying the content that we put together for you? If you have, I would love it if you signed up for our email list. We have some amazing content on there along with a really great free course that we put a ton of time into called How to Create Time for What Matters Most in Your Life. If that sounds exciting and interesting, and you want a bunch of other free goodies and giveaways along with that, just go to successpodcast.com. You can sign up right on the homepage. That's successpodcast.com. Or if you're on your phone right now, all you have to do is text the word smarter. That's S-M-A-R-T-E-R to the number 44222. Nelson Dellis is a four-time USA memory champion and one of the leading memory experts in the world. Nelson travels around the globe as a competitive memory athlete, memory consultant, Alzheimer's disease activist, and a highly sought-after keynote speaker. He's the author of the best-selling book, Remember It, the names of people you meet, all your passwords, where you left your keys, and everything else you tend to forget, and the upcoming Memory Superpowers, an adventurous guide to remembering what you don't want to forget. In our previous episode, we talked about saying you're sorry. When should you say sorry? And when should you stand your ground? What makes an apology meaningful? We uncovered the truth about apologies with our previous guest, Sean O'Mara. Now for our interview with Nelson. Nelson, welcome to the Science of Success. Hey, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Well, we're really excited to have you on the show today. There's so many fascinating things about your story and the things that you can teach us about memory. I'd love to start out with a simple question, which is, what exactly is a memory champion? That's a reasonable and fair question. Not many people know what that is or have even heard of some championship for memory. But it shouldn't be too surprising. I mean, I feel like this day and age, everybody 
or everything has some kind of competitive version or champion crowned in that field, you know? So a memory champion is someone who wins the U.S. memory championship or some memory championship, which is a competition where you spend the day memorizing random information, cards, numbers, names and faces, poems, lists of words, things like that. And some competitions have different formats, but the U.S. championship basically whittles it down kind of like a playoff style elimination rounds until the last man standing is a champ. And to give some context for this, give me a sense of the scope, the length, and the types of things that you'll memorize in the time frame. Yeah. So let's say one of the events, for example, is memorize a deck of cards as fast as you can. And there's a five minute max, but most people these days don't even need anything close to that. They'll do it sub 60 seconds. And so you literally pick up a deck of cards, you have a timer, you go through it as quick as you can to get it in your mind, touch the timer when you're done, and then you get another deck of cards that's in standard order and you try to put it in the order that you memorized to compare. Another one is memorizing numbers. You get five minutes, they give you a sheet filled with digits, separated in rows, and you have to memorize as much as you can at that time. And then you have a blank sheet of paper, a grid basically, that you have to fill in 10 minutes you get to recall what you memorized and you're scored on how much you get right accurately in that time frame. That's kind of the idea for the different events there too. There's a time domain and of course you're scored on accuracy. I find this so fascinating and memory athletics, I don't know if that's the term that you use or not, but sure, that, yeah. that's something that I've personally done a little bit of investigation on and taught myself a few of the very, very basic tricks for. But right. But yeah. for somebody who may not be familiar with it, give me a sense of how frequently and how regularly people will memorize a deck of cards in less than 60 seconds or, you know, memorize pages of numbers or memorize crazy amounts of binary digits and stuff. I mean, the things that you're able to use with the human memory in some of these competitions is pretty amazing. Yeah, it's crazy because this sport, let's call it a sport, has been around for 25 plus years. And I think at the beginning, there's stories of psychologists checking out the event and just saying like, okay, well, there's a limit to some of these events, how fast they can get, how much data they can potentially store. And I feel like every year that there is some kind of preconceived limit, but that always seems to be crashing down and someone comes along, breaks a record and just boggles everybody's mind. So sub 60 seconds in a deck of cards, for example, was kind of like the four minute mile 15 years ago. And then that four minute mile mark kind of became 30 seconds. And now, I mean, in the last seven, eight years, 30 seconds is pretty reasonable to achieve. And now it's 20 seconds. And even people are pushing now, I think the world record stands at 12.75 seconds to memorize a deck of cards, which is insane. So as the years pass, it's just like any other competitive thing, records keep getting pushed. It's really fascinating. And for the people who are competing in this, are these people geniuses? Do they have incredible memories? What enables them to achieve these fantastic feats of memory? Yeah. I mean, you'd think that these people are just naturally gifted or savants of some sort or super geeky, you know, like they never leave their bedroom just memorizing all day. And there's some of that. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I've spent a lot of hours <laughs> training, but there's a lot of really normal people from all walks of life, you know, there's lawyers or former lawyers, I guess, 
I was a grad student studying computer science when I got into this. There's pizza delivery guys, there's moms, kids, and uh, students, you know, in school. So it really runs the gamut. I mean, it's because everybody has a memory and it just shows how learnable I think these skills are, no matter who you are and how bad you may think your memory is. I think there's always hope there. So what exactly enables this wide array of people to achieve these kinds of memory feats? If it's not natural ability, what's behind that? Yeah, people ask that all the time. And I'm sometimes too quick to say, you know, anybody can do this because I don't quite mean that. I don't mean you can become a memory champion. I don't think anybody can do that. But I do think everybody can improve their memory quite significantly to what they're used to. Uh, Maybe not to a champion level, but still to an impressive level. The champion side of things, I really feel like it's really all about dedication. And I think that applies to anything. You just have to be dedicated, right? Which can't really be forced. You have to have some reason why you would make yourself sit down and train hours a day and enjoy it, right? Because if it's forced and it's not fun, it's tedious, then you're really probably not going to make much progress because you're not pushing yourself. So I don't know. That's like asking, you know, where does everybody's inspiration come from? It's hard to pinpoint that. But I do think the people who do really well, they all have something in common. And that is they have some kind of motivational story that got them started with memory techniques. And they're hooked to it for some reason. What I'm saying is there's nobody that just shows up and says, "Ah, I'm good at memory. And then they win. That never happens. It's always someone who is really dedicated to training. Totally makes sense. And I think the the training, the hard work, et cetera, really, if you look at champion performance across almost any domain that's ever present, I'm curious about within the specific domain of memory and even expanding beyond just looking at championship level performance, but really more broadly, what are the specific techniques, strategies, methodologies, et cetera, that you can use to achieve some of these things, even as a non-champion performer? Yeah. What's interesting too is you'll see that across the board, everybody's more or less using the same foundational techniques. Some of the strategies kind of vary here and there, and especially when somebody new comes along that kind of pushes the limit, breaks some records, they may be approaching it slightly different, but by and large, it's the same process. And I like to boil it down into kind of three steps. One is you're always trying to take what you're memorizing and encoding it into some mental image. That's really where I think a lot of the strategy goes because sometimes it's not very obvious how you should do that. If you have a number in front of you, a really big number, how do you turn that into a picture, right? So there are certain strategies to do that. But in essence, if you can find a way to represent that complicated piece of information that you want to memorize as a mental picture that has associations to things that are meaningful to you, you're going to have a better chance of memorizing it than by doing it rote. That's the first step. Second step is always to take those pictures, what you end up encoding, and finding a way to structure it or organize it in your mind in a way that makes it easily retrievable in the future. Sounds pretty fair. That makes sense. If you're trying to remember something, it better be in a place where you can actively retrieve it, right? But it turns out there's some different techniques, but the main one competitors will use is something called a memory palace. And that basically allows you to store your information in a certain order. And then it's really easy to pick that information back up in the same order that you left it. You can say it forwards, backwards, you can jump around. It's all there kind of laid out for you by use of this technique. 
And then finally, the last step, and this is more to kind of solidify memories and really push them into your long term, and that step is review. What's nice about the memory palace is that you can think of your mental structure for this information, and that could be your review. You never have to maybe look at the information on paper or online or whatever again. If you do it right, you can essentially look at something once and then review it just entirely in your head using that process. And that's it. I've been fascinated with a lot of these techniques for a long time. I want to dig into a number of the strategies that you use. Let's start with encoding. What are some of the really effective strategies that you've seen for encoding? And what are some of the ways that people can get it wrong or sometimes struggle with trying to encode things? Yeah, I think the most impressive has been seeing how people encode playing cards. And that's one where I think there's always a lot of innovation. A lot of people nowadays are using a system that was kind of pioneered by another competitor just a few years ago. And it seems to be really powerful. And it's quite complicated and it's quite difficult to learn, but the results pay off, it seems. But one such example of how we go about these strategies is for numbers. Numbers are really hard to memorize. So you know, you want to have some way to reliably always have an image whenever you see a certain number, let's say. So people will often use some kind of phonetic code to translate the numbers into letters. And then those letters can then be made into words. Words are a lot easier to come up with pictures for because they typically will have some already predecided image, right? Because you speak the language. So most words will mean something to you when you say it or read it or hear it. So I don't know how far you want to go into this, but there's a few different number systems that will translate those digits. And then it's just a matter of putting those words in your memory palace. And then if you know your mnemonic language for numbers very well, you can easily go back and forth. So I want to hear a couple examples of specific instances and see how exactly you've encoded, for example, certain numbers. But before we even dig into that, I want to take a step slightly back and look at the brain science or the reasoning behind why encoding is so powerful. Tell me a little bit about this idea of creating a mental image or a mental picture as opposed to trying to rote memorize static information and why that works so well from a brain perspective. Yeah, uh, let me preface this by saying I'm not a psychologist or doctor or anything. So a lot of what I say is based on things I've heard or talked about or read or studied and also personal experience and how I've seen things in my training and experience uh, in competition. So from what I know, the brain is very good at remembering images of things. And I've read arguments that have talked about, you know, this is kind of like a very early instinct of our ancestors that we needed in order to survive just by sight, right? Remembering things that were safe by visual cue, you know, versus dangerous, you know, eat this plant with this pattern, right? And it's safe to eat versus this one that has another pattern that's poisonous. I'm oversimplifying, but you kind of get the idea. There was a study I know done a number of years ago where they showed people in the trials 10,000 or so photos really quick in rapid succession. And then they were tested on, they were given pairs of photos. One was shown from that previous set and another was brand new, not seen before. And they had to always choose which one they had seen before. You know, they weren't really memorizing. 10,000 images really quickly is even hard for me to probably try and memorize. The results were really impressive. I believe most people would get like 99% correct. 
And they went on to say that it's because our minds are just naturally wired to remember pictures like that versus complicated data. And I get that. In terms of what I understand, it's you know something static that isn't too meaningful. Let's say like a number that's basically just a symbol. It doesn't mean anything besides the shape that you're looking at unless that number pops out off the page because it's associated to something. Maybe you are a big sports fan. And so when you see the number 16, you think of Joe Montana or something like that because you're a huge 49ers fan, right? And then we try to emulate that by giving all these different numbers letters, which translate into words. So instantly I look at a number and I can feel so many different things because now it's a picture with color and a picture has an emotion to it for me, anger or, you know, some kind of sexually driven thing. And those things seem to charge our memories. It's such a great point. And this idea that to me is one of the biggest insights from memory competition is this idea that we have to memorize things the way that our brain likes to remember, as opposed to the way that in our society, we often teach and often think that we should remember. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I often say is when you're memorizing, you're trying to turn the things it doesn't like to remember into things it does. And that's always how I try to frame it when I'm memorizing something is, okay, this isn't sticking. Why? Okay. It's because it's not very interesting. My brain is not liking this. So how can I twist it into something that my brain will like filled with colors, associations to things that I like and make me tick, you know? And you touched on that a second ago, but tell me a little bit more about the kinds of mental images that encode really well into our brains. You talked about things that are excitable, maybe sexual, maybe really crazy. Tell me a little bit more about that and maybe even share a couple examples of specific, whether it's maybe some numbers, maybe some other information that you've encoded in a way that you created these really vivid images to remember with. Yeah. So if you think of 9-11 or if you're old enough when Princess Diana was killed and trying to think of a more recent kind of shocking event, right? Most of us remember a very detailed kind of account of that day or around the time that the news hit. And that's always a fascinating thing to think about because if I ask you, what did you do the day before that, right? On 9-10, right? September 10th, 2001. Chances are you probably don't know, or even September 12th. And that's because those days were so shocking, out of the ordinary, in a very, very painful, emotional way, right? Some more than others, you know? And the flip side, there are certain events in your life that were the happiest or cheerful moments of your life, right? Or you just had this, you died of laughter, you know? And just of happiness, right? When my son was born, for example, is one that sticks right in my mind. And I can remember tons of information about that day. So what that leads me to is when you're trying to memorize, you want to kind of emulate a lot of those scenarios that just pop, right? Whether it's good or bad, you know, something that triggers some kind of emotional charge. So I kind of say, listen, when you're trying to memorize, you want to make it bizarre, over the top, hilarious, weird, uncomfortable, violent, sad, sexual, all of those are things that we just remember very well. You don't remember the mundane, that's for sure. And share one or two examples, if you're comfortable or willing to, just examples of either numbers that you use to encode or other 
items that you use to encode and help you memorize, for example, large digits? Yeah. So numbers is a good example. So I have a system where every three digits translates to a person. And then I have another system that translates every two digits to either an action or an object. And so I can combine seven digits together to make this little story of a person doing an action with a thing. And just by the randomness of how the numbers are presented to us, I get some really random images, combinations, right? So for example, in my number system for the three digits, the people, I have, you know, all my friends, all my family, ex-girlfriends, unfortunately, favorite characters from movies I like or cartoons I used to watch as a kid, athletes, actors, all those kinds of things, even some porn stars, but not too many. Uh, but, you know, I, I try to incorporate a lot of variety there and things that make me feel in different ways, right? So, you know, I can get some weird combinations where it's my best friend doing something to something some object really inappropriate and that's great because I, I can't forget that you know but sometimes it just get weird stuff like you know my dog is playing guitar with like a mushroom pick or something like that so it depends there's so many examples i could give you it's almost easier if you give me like a seven digit number and i'll yeah, tell can you can i throw out a random number and yeah Sure. We'll see what we end up with. And if it's inappropriate, we can figure yeah, out what I'll to dance do. dance around it. <laughs> nice. All right. So let's go 890-27-568. Is that... Wait, did I give you too many or is that... Yeah, just the 5-6. So I want seven. Okay, okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it. So 890, I break down... I have categories for it. So 890 is actually a musician from a punk band that I like. And it's from a band called No Effects. I don't know if you've heard of them. Um, yep. But one of the guitar players' name is El Jefe. That's his nickname. So he, that's him. He's 890, El Jefe. You can just imagine some kind of shorter, plump, punk rocker guy. 27 is an action. It's the action of doing kind of like the Bee Gees Saturday Night Fever dance, pointing down and then up. And then 56, as the last thing, is an object. It's a pair of scissors. So I picture this punk rocker guy doing the Bee Gees dance while holding a pair of scissors in that pointing hand. So that one's not too offensive or anything, but it's definitely a weird image for me. Give me another one. All right. Two, three, three, oh, seven, three, seven. All right. So 233 is R2D2. Um, <laughs> so all the 33s for me, 133, 233, 333, etc., are all characters from Star Wars. Nice. Two, 233 is R2D2. So he is drinking out of a martini glass, a big comet, like from Armageddon kind of thing. So 07 is the act of sipping a martini. And then 37 is a comet. Nice. I'm guessing the martini is 007. Yeah, you got it. Yeah. So some of these are pretty intuitive. 07 is James Bond. But if it's used as an action, it's him drinking his martini. That's really funny. And those are great images. And I might not be able to reverse encode them, but I think the image of R2-D2 <laughs> drinking a comet out of martini glass will definitely stick around. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. That's so fascinating. And I just wanted to figure out, demonstrate how this actually works in practice. You know what I mean? And how these crazy images really stick out in your mind. And then if you've done the work on the back end of encoding 233 is R2-D2 and then yep. 07... 37? 37, yeah. Then that makes it really easy to spit that back out. And that image is one piece of information instead of 
seven exactly. discrete numbers. Yeah. Now think about how when we memorize, it's a full page of numbers, right? So I'm looking at every seven and thinking of one of these unique pictures, right? But then the question is, how do I keep that all straight in order, right? And that's where yep. the memory palace comes in. So, you know, the way these work is you think of some kind of familiar place in the ancient days, I guess they all had palaces, but you can think of just your house as one. And usually you start at a place that makes sense. Like either you start in your bed, that's where you wake up, or maybe you start at your front door because that's where you enter your house. It doesn't really matter. You just got to decide and stick with that. So what I would do at the first location of my memory palace, right? So I'm making a pathway through this place and wherever I start is where my first image would go. So if 233.07.37 was my first seven digits, I would literally put R2D2 drinking that comet next to my front door. Like I imagine I'm picturing that in my mind. And then I move into the doorway of my house and then I place the next seven digits as an image in that entryway. And then I continue this process kind of navigating around my space. And, you know, when I'm done, I'm done. And then when I want to recall it all, I just retrace my steps. I can start at the beginning or go reverse. It doesn't matter. The pathway shouldn't be something difficult to memorize. It should be something you're very familiar with. And that's why using a house that you live in or lived in is the best because it's basically pre-memorized. Yeah. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. That totally makes sense. I'm curious, and maybe we're getting a little bit too nerdy here, but I'm interested to see how you think about this. How do you think about changing memory palaces, adding new memory palaces, cleaning memory palaces? And what is your perspective on how big or small a memory palace should be? I guess I'm trying to figure out what makes a good memory palace and how do we maintain them or how do you keep putting more and more information in them? Sure. So for me, I train a lot and there's a lot of different disciplines in these competitions that require maybe different sized memory palaces. For numbers, I have really big ones that exceed 60 locations, and I have many of them to practice with. For cards, it's much shorter because the way I condense the deck, I really only need about 17 locations, so they're much smaller. And then I have some that I just have for the day-to-day -day stuff, just in case I need to dump something in a memory palace on the go. So for the everyday person though who's not training, I think a good place to start is to maybe choose three to five different locations. You know, maybe your house, your place of work, the park. It depends on what's important in your life or your schedule, you know. And then for each of those places, think of a path through it and choose 20 spots along the way. And each of those spots you can think of as kind of like a storage space where you can place information. And the more of them you have, essentially, the more you can memorize, the more gigs you have on that hard drive up there. And I say 20 because that's a good place to start, but you could easily expand that to 50, 60, 100 even. There's no real limit. And then in terms of size, like physical size, some people find it easier to start with memory palaces and locations being different rooms. So you start at the front door. 
there's the entryway, then maybe there's the living room, then the kitchen. Those are fine as your locations, but you can easily even make it more specified. So you could narrow in on the front door and get a lot of locations on that door and use those too. Depends how deep you want to go. So it really depends how you want to use the space that you're trying to encode as a memory palace. You can either keep it very broad and large scale, or you can even imagine yourself shrunk down. And now you have this huge world to choose so many spots and you just make your path, your route through that memory palace even bigger. That's fascinating. I love the idea of shrinking yourself down and condensing even a single room or even a desk or something like that. Granted, it'd have to have enough uniqueness in different areas, but into a memory palace in and of itself. Because a lot of people say, well, you know, I don't have too many places or my apartment's small. I don't have a big palace or a house. And I say, it doesn't matter, right? Just, I always use this example, but there's this German memory guy who always says that he once taught a guy how to memorize all the presidents in order on a bar of soap. The bar of soap was the memory palace, right? And that probably wasn't super easy, but you can imagine a bar of soap upon first glance looks pretty boring and nothing special. But if you really took the time to look at it, there's probably tons of kinks and divots and cubes, I don't know, that could easily be locations around the path of this tiny little object if you imagine yourself small enough, you know? Yeah, that's really interesting. And I'm curious, do you ever reuse your memory palaces or do you always bring new ones to every competition and every time you want to use one? Yeah, we reuse. You have to. Otherwise, you're always going to be trying to come up with new ones. And I train so much that if I did that, I'd be out of them real quick. (laughs) But I do add new ones. I do that when I feel like I just had an amazing experience or I just moved to a new house. And I want to use that location in my memory palace because I feel like the more excited I am about the place because it's meaningful or it reminds me of something important to me, the better I use it. So, for example, I climb a lot and on my expeditions, you know, I visit a lot of crazy remote places and, you know, we build base camps and stuff like that. And there's features on the mountain. So when I come back, I really want to cherish those memories and converting them into memory palaces, new ones is a great way to kind of memorize stuff for competition, but also to review those memories and those places that I visited. But for training purposes, I typically will reuse my memory palaces that I have. I'll cycle through them because I need to do that since I train so much. But I will say that if there's information that you just want to learn, not for competition, but let's say you want to know something and keep that information forever, like the presidents, let's say, in order, I might create a memory palace specifically for that case and then never touch it. Just leave it for that information to live there and keep it kind of fresh for that. Because if you start putting things on top of it, maybe it'll confuse the information for stuff you want to actually know for a long time, you don't want to mess that up, you know? That totally makes sense. So for training, competition, that kind of stuff, it's easy to reuse them. But if you're really trying to park information over the long term, it makes more sense to have specific memory palaces for specific things that you want to remember. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. How do you think about the bridge between, let's say, a memory palace or something that you've encoded in the shorter term and actually integrating that into your long-term memory? I get that question a lot. And, you know, I always say that memory techniques, I feel like, are to get information into your short-term memory very quickly. And then it's a matter of what you do with it after that to get it into your long-term if you want that. So what I was saying before, the review part, 
that's really the glue that keeps it there for a long time. But maybe you don't want to review that much because you have to recall the information tomorrow and then past that, you don't really care to keep it. That's a situation that could happen. But then there's also information that you want to know a year from now, 10 years from now, right? Forever. Once you have it encoded in a memory palace, it's very easy to access. And by frequency of thought and review of that information, that's how you really build it into your long term. So it's as simple as think about it more often, review it in your memory palace at the beginning and for a while after that to put it into your long term. And if you don't want to, then just stop thinking about it. That totally makes sense. I'm curious, I want to ask a couple rapid fire questions around some memory strategies. And in many ways, you've shared a lot of the underlying techniques and strategies that underpin this, but I want to just hit a few specific things. One of the things that I'm sure you get asked about all the time and is a very applicable and an easy entry point into this is people's names. And oh, yeah. you know, I'm definitely somebody who hears somebody's name, forget it 10 seconds later before I learned a lot of these techniques. But I'm curious, how do you think about easily remembering people's names and what are some strategies that can be used to make that more effective and be better at catching someone's name and really remembering it? I always tell people to start with the easiest thing in the world, and that is to pay attention. I mean, it's so obvious, but in this day and age, it's really something that we're not very good at because we're always staring at our phones or thinking about the millions of things that we should be doing outside of where we actually are. So if you can be present when you meet someone and shake their hand and ask for their name and act like you actually really want to know what their name is, that alone will be a game changer. And it's easy to try. I mean, if you don't believe me, try it and you'll see what I'm talking about. In terms of a technique on top of that, it's kind of a similar process. So I hear a name, I turn it into a picture. Not always the easiest thing, but with practice that can get faster. And I usually go with something that it reminds me of or sounds like or makes me think of. Then I attach it to something, just like I attach some things to my memory palace. Only for names, I actually use the person's face as the location. Why their face? Well, because every time I see them, they bring their face with them, right? <laughs> so if I can attach a picture to their face, they essentially bring along the image for their name kind of attached to that. I usually try to choose some kind of feature that pops out at me, whether it's complimentary or non-complimentary to the person. It's just whatever I notice uh, is the feature I use. And then I attach an image for the name on that thing. Very similar to the memory palace idea. So in essence, you almost create a memory palace on their on face. Them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. And this comes back to the same thing we touched on earlier, but it's so important to make sure that that image is super vivid, is maybe offensive or bizarre or sexual in some way to really make it stick, right? That's right. Yeah, no, that's key. So, you know, just thinking of, for example, Matt, right? I think of just like a, a doormat. That's my oh, image. <laughs> but just because the word I'm Matt, kidding, I'm kidding. You, know? you know, if I'm trying to picture that, thinking of that flat object on the floor is so boring, right? How is that any better than just trying to remember your name for what it is? But I'll go and make some connection to something I know about or see about your face to that mat and give it a reason. Like why would those two things come together and really envision this scenario with all my senses and try to pull out some emotional feeling from it? 
That totally makes sense. All right. Next thing, if we're on the go and we have to memorize something really quickly, whether it's a number or a list of a few things, what's the best way to quickly memorize that? So a list of quick things. I can start there. That I always encourage the memory palace, but I understand that you got to think of a memory palace in the first place. But on the go, you can do something called a linking method where if you have a list of things or a list of words, let's say like a grocery list, you know, you come up with a picture for the first item and then you link it to the next item. And linking really means just think of a picture where it interacts with the next thing. And then that next thing, have it interact with the next thing. Basically, what I'm saying is create a story, right? Connect them all in some kind of sequential narrative. And that doesn't require a memory palace. It's very quick and easy. The only downside is if you miss one or you have a gap or something, it's really hard to get the next item because they're all connected, right? The memory palace allows you to skip around. But it is the quickest, easiest way, I think, to memorize something powerfully. And it comes back to that same idea, right? Having some sort of emotional connection to the information, making it vibrant, making it alive so that it sticks out and plays into the way that the brain naturally remembers things as opposed to just trying to cram boring, dry information in there. Yeah, you got it. That's exactly it. Yeah. All right. What about remembering where we left our keys? Yeah, that's a good one. And good God, everybody forgets that. I do still sometimes because I'm not paying attention. But what I find is when I'm training a lot, I find that I'm more in the headspace of how do I remember this? And just by being that way, I'm very aware or present when I do a lot of my actions. One, like putting down my keys. And so when I put it down, I will be very aware of what I'm doing. That kind of sounds like a cop out, but more of a technique if you want this. And I do this sometimes too when I'm kind of on a streak of forgetting things is when I put something down, like my keys or a wallet, or if I do something and I want to remember I did it or where I did it, I'll make some kind of weird personal gesture to myself, like a physical gesture, like I'll move something or click my heels or pinch myself or something like that. Something that's not too embarrassing that maybe people might notice or if it's in my house, it doesn't matter. But the idea is that if I do something strange or out of the ordinary in that moment when I set down the keys later on when I'm like, where did I put my keys? Oh, I'll think of that weird thing I did and then that'll help me remember where I put my keys. That totally makes sense. I'm curious, that makes me think of something else that I'd be interested to see if you've thought about this or applied it and I may botch the description of this, but one of the most interesting things that I've learned about memory is this idea that novelty or uniqueness it sort of creates an extended sense of time, if that makes sense. And so if you have a memory of a vacation and it's seven days doing the exact same thing every day, mm-hmm. that's basically one memory. But if you have a 24-hour trip where you do something completely crazy and different every hour of the day, that might actually seem like a longer memory than just the memory of that seven-day beach vacation. Yeah, and it's funny because maybe when you're doing all that stuff, time flies by, right? So when you're experiencing it, it probably doesn't feel very long, but that almost doesn't matter because a lot of the joy that we get from things is often thinking back on it. And if it feels full, right? Because you think back and you think of, oh, this day we jet skied and oh, then we explored this island and then we also had dinner at this place. Like, suddenly that time feels really stretched out. And I've had years where it's been slower in terms of travel and I haven't done much. And then there's other years where I was just all over the place doing almost new things 
every day. And those years, you know, when years pass by, you're like, where did that year go? But in the years where you pack a lot in there and you think back on it, if there's a lot to think back on, it really feels like a long time. So it's kind of a time hack, if you will. I've even heard of strategies like if you have a dinner party, instead of having everyone stay in the same room the whole time, have people change rooms, go into four or five different rooms, play different music, do different things in those rooms. And suddenly that whole night seems much longer in hindsight than it yeah, than it wow. would be if you just did the same thing. That's a great idea. I've never thought of that. That's awesome. I love that. Do you know where you heard that? I think it was on a podcast years ago, but I don't remember exactly okay. where. Love that. I'm going to use that in some way in the future. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a really interesting concept. And I was curious as someone who spends so much time thinking about time and memory, if that had ever come across your plate. I've probably done similar things. I've done presentations or workshops. We've done stuff where it wasn't just me talking to them sitting in their seat. We moved them around, kind of had them interact with each other or me in different ways. And the goal is, yeah, because you're going to spice it up, make it memorable, you know? Absolutely. Well, Nelson, for listeners who want to concretely put in practice or implement something that we've talked about today, what would be one action step or piece of homework that you would give them to start embarking on this journey? I'm a big fan of just starting with making the effort. As I said before, it's so easy to not try. Memory doesn't always get the best reputation. It feels like something that's boring, hard. And if there's apps that can do it for me, why bother? But the argument can be made, one, for the health of your brain. Memorizing is good for the longevity of your brain health. And then secondly, there's a lot that your memory can do that ultimately devices can't yet or will ever be able to do. And I also love the fact that it makes you feel like you have a true mastery over that thing in your mind, that thing that a lot of people have anxiety over or want to trust, but it can't always be trusted because sometimes it forgets things. Imagine you knew that something you put in there will be there. What a feeling, right? That you don't have to worry about that falling away. Imagine that feeling in an interview when you've just met five people's names and had to remember what you were going to say. All that nerve can go out the window and you can focus on what you're actually there for. And that's to impress someone, right? And, and get the job. So it starts by making the effort, right? And to value what your memory is and what it can be. And then from there, if you want to add these memory techniques and learn more and work on them, it takes a little work every day to get better at them. I think there's just so many positives to that. Great advice. And it's simple, but it makes so much sense to start trusting in your memory, start using your memory. And the more you use it, the more you can start to really rely on it. Yep, exactly. And where can listeners find you, your work, all of your books, et cetera, online? You can start on my website, so nelsondellis.com. You can send me a message, and I actually offer one-on-one -on -one coaching. I do speaking gigs as well for businesses. If anybody out there is interested in that or workshops, then you can ask about that on my website. In terms of resources for people wanting to learn more about the techniques themselves, I have a book out. It's called Remember It. It's on Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, all that. I have a kid's version coming out this summer, if you have kids, uh, in middle school, and then my YouTube channel has a lot of videos. It's all free, of course. And I think there's a lot of stuff I have on there, a lot of content that can help people get started. 
Well, Nelson, thank you so much for coming on the show, for sharing some great stories, some great strategies, and a really interesting conversation about how we can more effectively use our memories. Yeah, likewise. You had some awesome questions. It was enjoyable. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created the show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or if you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success.